storytelling is, like you said, it's about a relationship, right? And I think that what you need in a storytelling configuration is, is you need a teller and an audience, and, and you need a story. You need the tale. The form, I think that the most fascinating thing about storytelling to me is how much it depends on, on interpersonal dynamics. It is a relationship that's being forged between storyteller and listener, and that's going to change. You know, like, I think it's one of the things about, like, telling stories in person that's so incredible and the stories that we tell ourselves the stories that we surround ourselves with are are the stories that inform our identities they're the stories that help us they help us navigate through the world and make sense of the of the world around us they're they're meaning making devices and so please note that we experienced some audio issues during this episode so you will likely hear some slight background noises Even so, we would encourage you to listen through because we learned so much from our guest this week, Julie Knudsen. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week, we have a special episode to celebrate Women's History Month. Our guest this week is Julie Knudsen. Julie is an author and educator with a wide-ranging background in history, humanities, and the social sciences. She also serves as the editorial director at Think Circa. A true multi-potentialite, Julie holds an undergraduate degree in cultural studies from NYU, a master's degree in political sociology from the London School of Economics, and additional postgrad degrees in education and art history from Rice University. One of her recent books, Global Citizenship, Engage the Politics of a Changing World, was awarded a Skipping Stones honor for multicultural books, and it helps young readers examine what it means to be a global citizen. Julie is an active member of the National Council for the Social Studies, having served as the chair of its Middle School Teacher of the Word in 2018, and also maintains membership in the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. So Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, happy to have you, have the opportunity to speak with you today. And I think the place that we'd like to start really was born out of the guest questionnaire that you had provided before the interview. And one of the ideas that you wrote about uh, really struck us at Discover More. was really an articulation of some of the ideas that we've been trying to bring forward on the show. And you wrote, nothing is really impractical. Any new knowledge helps us better understand the world around us. Thinking through this idea, especially with your wide-ranging educational experience. We'd be curious as to how you came to that realization. You mentioned, in my 20s, I was almost apologetic about these wide-ranging interests. So we'd love to hear kind of your thought process, decision-making process, just what was going on in your head during this time of making these decisions and how did you ultimately overcome these apologetic tendencies and really lean into that any new knowledge helps us better understand the world around us idea. 
Well, I'll start with how I overcame it. Um, and that really is centered on the experience of writing the book, Global Citizenship, Engage in the Politics of a Changing World, which I um, began affectionately referring to as like, it was like an autobiography of everything people had told me was impractical. Because, you know, I mean, it was on social movement theory, just all sorts of things um, that I had studied at Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, you know, all of these things that people had kind of said, my parents in particular, love them, but um, had said, you know, those are, those are interesting theoretical interests, but, you know, kind of what's the practical application of, of these things. And, you know, at the end of your MSc in political sociology, what, what does that translate into practically? I just always kind of kept going. I kept, I continued to follow these paths of things that were really just intrinsically interesting to me, despite those outside voices. And, and then, you know, there was this validation when I, when it came time to write this book and so many of those topics were really necessary to touch on, were necessary when you're looking at, you know, explaining issues to, to young readers about um, the economic structure of our society, about cultural rights, about human rights. These were all of the topics that I had, had spent a lot of time thinking about in my early 20s, uh, early to late 20s. And it was such a pleasure to revisit them and, and to come back to them and, and be able to bring them, you know, and make them accessible to, to young readers. If we can because we like being specific and tangible with our show, especially with, like you said, you have such a good grasp on the overarching level. So for you specifically, Julie, how did you, like, what did you have to parse through in terms of, oh, uh, here are the external noises, here are the external pressures, whether it's from your parents or from your friends or from your other maybe colleagues who are studying at LSE or these very prestigious institutions and they might be dealing with high salary or high income straight out of the gate while you're still doubling down on your pursuit to not just empower yourself, but to collect the toolkits to empower the next generation. So how did you specifically deal with that in terms of dealing with different noises and staying true to your path? Having a supportive network of, of mentors and friends, you know, that was huge for me. When I decided to do a, a graduate degree in art history at Rice, the then director of that program had daughters who were roughly my age. Similarly, she just said, you know, if it's something you're interested in, if it's something you love, there's going to be a way to put it to use. You know, her daughter had studied world language traditions. And um, in terms of finding a position or finding a role, it was really niche. But if you do it and if you're really passionate about it and care about it, oftentimes the opportunities do present themselves if you just follow it, you know, wholeheartedly. So really having supportive cast of characters of friends and mentors and colleagues who model speaking back against this accusation of impracticality, that was tremendously helpful for me because you feel less alone, right? Um, it becomes more of a community. Yeah, certainly. That idea of community is really close to our hearts. Um, even what you mentioned about having sounding boards for a lot of these ideas is a big benefit that we've kind of accidentally found through the podcast, right? Being able to talk to people and wide ranging experiences all over the board. And I think I'm particularly curious into when or are there any specific instances where having this multifaceted wide ranging lens to view life through has been exceptionally beneficial or like allowed you to see a new insight that maybe you hadn't before. Looking at it as a, a person who works in education, 
things are interesting when they're complex, you know, and kids get that. Oftentimes, there's a tendency to, to want to oversimplify something. And I mean, it's something that we see in classrooms all the time. Um, you know, this is, this is what this conflict was about. This is what, you know, like this is, and causality isn't that easy. And so I, you know, as a teacher, I, I like to just make things messy, you know, to, to give kids, um, it's, it's really all about the questions. Questions are the cornerstone. And so I think the training that I had lends itself really well to doing that kind of inquiry and being uncomfortable with not having clear answers and in following research projects and processes. I think it can ignite a sense of agency. You know, I, there's a point where you can meet a lot of different students in terms of their interests and in terms of their dialogue. And so much of what you do in the social sciences is learn how to ask questions. Recently did a book that I, I'm Marie Curie. I am not a trained scientist. I'm, I'm not a chemist, uh, nor am I a physicist. And, um, you know, going into that project, it was, it was really quite intimidating. She's also a, a person who has been so widely covered. You know, obviously there's so much about her. So I, I really wanted to look at that project through the lens of a social scientist and, and try to situate her more broadly in relation to this kind of Cunian concept of the structure of scientific revolutions, right? So um, looking at what was happening in the late 19th century and in terms of this quest for breaking down the visible world and, you know, really seeing how she fit in, in that time and place and, and how she informed the time and place that followed. When I dove into that project, my kind of strengths and my, what I was comfortable with in terms of looking at gender and at politics and the interplay between Eastern and Western Europe at the time. And I brought all of those things to, to kind of looking at her story. And I, I think that made it a really unique project. That's awesome because Aiden and myself, we share the exact same belief that it was actually Aiden's analogy that we view the world through a portal. Right? And the more knowledge, the more pieces of puzzle that you have, the more lenses that you are equipped with, the more complete that portal becomes. And therefore, the picture or the perception of the world that you view through the portal also becomes more complete. But that requires a lot of building blocks that you alluded to. I want to focus and zoom in on one thing that you said in passing. I had a full stop on this, on this side of the screen. You said that if it's complex, it's interesting. I know what that means, but I still would love you to walk us through what do you mean by that? What do you mean by complex things are interesting? Yeah, I think um, when I teach writing in particular, or when I teach students how to ask questions, there's the question of, you know, I mean, it's easy to answer a where. It's easy to answer a when. The questions that we want to teach kids to ask are why and how, because those are going to get more than a one word answer, right? So I am really drawn to the why and the how just because it's going to lead to more dialogue. You know, it's not a dead end. And um, I think about, we kind of talked in our earlier call about improv and this whole idea of, of like, yes, and, and of moving a dialogue forward and, um, you know, looking for and finding, finding pathways to do that. And I think um, complexity isn't something that people should shy away from. It's something that we should embrace. And if you're doing, if you're engaging in a process of questioning and you're just, just keep asking why it's like an annoying kid you know um like my son sometimes will go into a mode where he just will do like even still he's eight now but he'll still do the why game and and i can't stop him because it is um, really a compelling thing to just try to continue to answer why until you you get to an end point it can go on forever 
And I think that's um, meaningful in and of itself, you know, the idea that, that there is no end to, to the process, that we just have to keep going and, and keep asking questions. Yeah, I think there's something to be said that, you know, there's always another layer to uncover, right? By continuing to ask why you can uncover, discover things that you never knew possible. Um, I can only imagine your son coupled with the childhood curiosity, but also being your son asking why over and over again. I suspect that there's a lot of curiosity, desire to, you know, learn more built into that. Based on what you said, I'm curious around improv and how that shows up in the classroom. You know, when you first introduced those two topics, I saw them as like completely unsegmented, but as we've been discussing, there's intersections all over the place that typically we may not be aware of. So I'd love to see or hear about how that shows up in the classroom. How do you combine improv and teaching? You know, how does that facilitate these complex conversations with students? The important thing about improv and play in the classroom is that it's all about getting kids past the point of feeling self-conscious. Like so much of what we do, I remember as a kid in the classroom, even into grad school, having, you know, butterflies when it, when it was time to speak, getting sweaty palms and, and feeling nervous. You know, I think establishing a classroom culture, establishing classroom spaces that are playful and joyful and that are really premised on this idea of building on what you're given. I did an exercise with a group of third graders. I, I lead a club at my son's school last week, a storytelling exercise where they it's a classic improv exercise, but you're just building on what the person before you gave you and writing a story together collectively. So I think for me, the thing that the draw with improv is one, it breaks down this idea of self-consciousness because everybody's being silly. Like it's a culture of, you know, you're just like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to keep moving forward and we're going to take this question to its limit. And, you know, I think that's, that's really beautiful. And then two, it really is communitarian. It requires the participation of everybody in the classroom. It doesn't always work, right? Um, especially with, with younger kids. But it is, I think, a, a great way of um, looking at the world and being present when you're engaged in play. And when you're engaged, you, if, you're do, if you're writing a story as a group, you have to be listening to what the person before you said. And that's, it's just a great way of, of getting kids to really be present together in a shared space and working collaboratively and not competitively. You know, it's, it's not going to work well if it's about who's funniest or who has the best line or if somebody's trying to be you know, extra funny. Like, it, it has to be, you sacrifice your ego a little bit in the process. There are so many layers to improv or the power of play. I'm very familiar with transpersonal psychology and transpersonal psychology is about that, is leaning into that transpersonal state, whether it's um, subsiding of ego, as you said, or whether it's really just emerging in the presence. That only happens, like flow only happens when you can let go of the past and the future of what I could be, uh, my ego, how am I gonna feel, how are people gonna perceive me, but just be grounded, right? It's almost like a grounding mechanism for your students, which is amazing. With that, I just wanna stay on this for a bit. Why improv? Like, is this your upbringing from your parents? Is this how you were taught? But why this compelling need to use improv as a driving mechanism to teach your students? Because it's obviously working. Well, I want I'm a Chicagoan. So I think that there's a kind of natural gravitational pull towards improv and improvisational comedy. And I became kind of interested in it uh, from a research point of view. Um, the person who founded sort of improv as we know it today is named Viola Spolin. 
and she was, um, I came across her work because she was actually in the early 20th century, like in the 1920s, working at Hull House in Chicago, which was a settlement house, and using games and game, theater games in particular to bridge cultural barriers between different children who were involved in, in Hull House programming, after school programming, and then, and then in WPA programming in the 1930s during the Great Depression. So. I kind of came at it um, through this lens of just finding her to be this absolutely fascinating character. And there's um, a very, very good documentary that was done last year, a Chicago PBS documentary on her. Just a, a totally fascinating life and has coached and led uh, her son, Paul Sills, founded the Second City, kind of led a lot of the work that happened with like Elaine May and other like really great comic writers at the University of Chicago in the 1950s and 60s. And then, you know, it, it just kind of grew. But I think seeing the power of, of these games, um, my son has done some kids' improv classes with like Chicago Children's Theater and, and other organizations. And it has a tremendous power to help people overcome, again, anxieties. And the number of applications for it are pretty incredible. And then I think right now, you know, coming out of the pandemic, hopefully, I knock on wood, but kind of re-emerging after a couple of years of, of hibernation for a lot of people, there is a lot of anxiety about interacting in, in the world. I think it would be um, totally remiss to, to dismiss that. You know, like I definitely still feel going to the grocery store or interacting with people like I'm a little out of practice sometimes. So I think some of these techniques of just reminding ourselves that it's okay to, to be playful, it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay to take a breath and and go with it, go with what's what's there, are really helpful and beneficial. And, and I'd encourage people to, if you're struggling with social anxiety in particular, there are some pretty cool things in the improvisational toolkit that, that might be helpful for people. On that note, just to provide some clinical resources from the clinical psychotherapy aspect, uh, expressive art therapy incorporates exact that component of improv using expressive art to let go of the ego, let go of what should be, what ought to be, just let it be. And the efficacy of expressive art therapy has been well established in the literature. And we will be sure to note those resources for people who are interested in in the show notes below. I just want to click on the yes and, because I think that is the perfect segue going to my next questions about time. I want to know about your perspective on time. Uh, there is this concept called slow productivity versus fast productivity that I've been very interested in the past couple of weeks. And in a nutshell, slow productivity is basically the idea that humans aren't meant to computate as much task in the shortest amount of time for the sake of optimality, because that's when pressure, distress, anxiety becomes a barrier to your productivity. Whereas slow productivity is when you, a lot of fiction writers or a lot of academia or a lot of scientists view their endeavor. It's a five to 10 year process because research takes time, collecting data takes time. But because of that, you don't feel rushed. You can truly be optimal because you have this very long form version, which is slow productivity, right? The reason why I share that with you, Julie, because for me, in order to achieve yes and, it requires underlying perspective on time. Because I think a lot of us are living under the container of or. It's A or B, uh-huh. B or C. I can only do this or that. It's like that donkey story, right? Do I want the water or the carrots? But you could do both by having a healthy perspective on time. So how do you think about yes and in terms of your perspective on time? 
because I sense that a little bit with your upbringing, with your trainings, and you're doing so many things. Like you've done consulting, you've done coding, you've done teaching, you've done editing, you've done all these things, yet you're back into where your passion is, which is educating. So how do you view your perspective on time? I would say that I have a, a major tendency to overcommit um, as, as a starter. And I do think that there's a, a total place for, for no but, you know, and um, it's something that my dear friend Paris Grayman, who's been a guest on your show and I have talked about a lot, kind of setting limits, particularly when you're feeling overtaxed. To go back to yes and for a second, I think it can be an incredible creative tool, particularly for getting past the inner critic. There were a couple of things that you all said that made me think of like Julia Cameron and the artist's way. And again, just like working in free form, particularly for writers, just getting the ideas out and not thinking about them as something that is practical or as something that's going to necessarily be read or be used. So I think that for getting past creative blocks, yes, and is, is huge. And I do think it is also really useful in a lot of social situations and settings. But there's definitely the possibility that if you yes and to everything, you know, you would be 100% exhausted all the time. Um, <laughs> and so um, Paris and I have had converse, a lot of conversations over the past year about just when and how to say no and acknowledge that vulnerability, which I think is something that I didn't do for a long time. But it's really important. And, and again, I think this goes to Women's History Month, too, and the experience of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of caregiving tasks, you know, last year when my son was doing remote learning. And a lot of that burden fell on, on female caregivers. And so I think during like that experience of doing it really did force me to be reflective about like how much can one person do at once? And how can we achieve more equitable structures, really not just in our household, um, but globally, how can we achieve more equitable structures? I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but that's, you know, when, when you're continually yes-ending, it, it can be exhausting, and, but it, it does lead to a point where you can set firm limits, which is where I find myself now. That's beautiful. I think we would definitely like to jump to creating some of those larger social changes that you kind of brought up towards the tail end of your point. Before that, you mentioned the idea of Julia Cameron. And I think as we're on this easing back into the world, kind of learning how to reacclimate with society at large, for me, writing has been a fundamental element of that, of overcoming the self-critic, like you kind of mentioned. Um, if we're able to overcome the inner critic on the page and what we're writing about, sometimes, it, at least in my experience, has been easier to do that in interpersonal communications. So I would love to hear your thoughts around Julia Cameron's work specific. Have you done morning pages? I'm kind of assuming so if you're mentioning those, but I think that for me has been a really tangible resource that's helped my life in a number of ways. And I think maybe hearing you speak to the process of morning pages, being a writer, how that's all kind of part of interacting in society. Yeah, uh, morning pages are an incredible resource for people who are unfamiliar with them. Julia Cameron wrote a book called The Artist's Way. Sort of the cornerstone is every morning when you wake up before you do anything, you just sit down and you write three pages. If you don't have anything to say, you write, I don't have anything to say, but it's all about the movement of um, the physicality and um, the movement of pen or pencil across page and feeling like you are getting some, you're transmitting something onto paper. Again, just in terms of looking at morning pages and what you come back to, what themes for, for writers and, and for creative processes, what things are 
kind of reemerging. Like it can be a really interesting exercise um, and exploration of your your subconscious. You know, I mean, like because you, you might wake up and and you're writing the same thing every day. You know, like obviously this is something that you you care about. It gives you a space to see and experience patterns, and also just again write without judging yourself. Like the point is to just get things out um, and and not judge it. The other thing that I think is so incredible from Julia Cameron's work, um, and I've been, again, with the world kind of opening up a bit again, I, I think about this a lot, um, are artist dates. Um, so in the artist way, Julia Cameron goes, advocates for people taking once a week where you just do something that you enjoy for yourself. And I mean, it's such a simple idea but it is so restorative. You know, it might be like, I really love vintage clothes. It might be, you know, like going and doing some picking for vintage clothes or going to a bookstore or going to a museum or going on a hike. It's just finding things that get you out of those ruts. I think a lot of people have spent the past two years home and kind of hibernation mode and finding ways to re-engage, um, you know, it, it sounds cheesy, but rediscover like some joy and wonder in, in our surroundings. And being intentional about making time to do that is really, I think, pretty beautiful and, and necessary thing. Um, so I'd encourage everyone next week to take themselves on an artist date. I personally will answer that call to action <laughs> uh, for sure. <laughs> I heard this before, I don't know who is attributable to, but the quote somewhere along the line is, a lot of times we think uh, playing in school is part of the package from going to school, but maybe the whole point of going to school is just to play. Everything else is just noises, right? But now gradually with our focus on STEM and all these recreational programs get cut out even in very well-funded schools. I don't know about your school because your school sounds like the, <laughs> the mecca of education. Uh, but you know, a lot of schools are dealing with this funding or this contention between achievement or play, achievement or letting children be closer to authentic selves, which in turn creates this ripple effect in their achievements. But it's very counterintuitive, right? In this, a lot of these policymakers' eyes or sure stakers' eyes. Um, how do you think about that? Is that, like I said, the quote alludes to the fact that maybe the whole point is to play because there's so much emotional, intellectuals, and interpersonal benefits to the components of play but with this societal current weaning or leaning towards lopsidedly to the achievement side and neglecting this play entirely. We'll get to the macro aspect of the systematic changes, but in this education container, how do you feel about this as an advocate and educator yourself? I love that question. Um, and, you know, I think that um, when you think about play in education, when you think about like improv, you're, you're doing critical literacy, you're reading, you're writing, you're speaking, you're listening. And, and those at the end of the day are the core skills that matter. You're, you're learning how to collaborate and you're being creative. Again, a, a very, very powerful tool when paired with other things. Obviously, it's, it's not just all about improv. I'll tell you an anecdote. My son goes on spring break next week. And he the other day got in the car at the end of the school day and said, you know, I'm really excited or like I'm excited for spring break. The sad thing is, is that the week after we get back from spring break, we have to do like whatever this particular test is. And so again, like this idea of spring break being overshadowed, like he's eight and, and he's thinking about a test that's going to happen a few weeks from now. And I, I just, I often reflect on as a parent, that amount of anxiety that's created by these tests. And looking at, you know, if I were a kid, would I, 
would I be excited about? I mean, what gets you excited? What's going to get you charged up to, you know, to learn? And when you constantly feel like you're being assessed or measured, I do think that there's a level of fear that comes with that. Um, a fear of rejection, fear of failure, and, and fear interferes with authentic learning. You know, I think kids need to first and foremost feel safe and supported and nurtured in learning environments. Every teacher I know right now needs a giant hug. <laughs> um, and, you know, teachers are incredible, and my son's teacher is incredible. But the sort of overarching system of, of metricizing achievement, I think, is, is really hard and, and really unfair right at this particular juncture because there have been so many interruptions and not every student has been able to experience the same kind of levels of continuity. It's not, to me, really developmentally um, or socially considerate to uh, expect all kids to be in the same place right now because kids have experienced a lot of loss in over the past two years and, uh, and that's something that I think educators just really, we all need to be mindful of, but there's a period of, of childhood when you think about kids who started who were in first grade the pandemic and you know missed two years of like a lot of the things that we use sort of see as as fundamental you know kind of things that you do when you're seven or eight you go to birthday parties you know when you're they're just things that kids haven't done for two years i think we need to be really sensitive to that in, in addition to and on top of like those social things in addition to the academic things uh which are you know, again, pretty uneven right now. You know, we really appreciate that, especially, you know, as a, I come from a family of a lot of teachers. So I think to your point, I really just want to take a moment and recognize both you and all educators around for dealing with the tornado of the last two years. I've thought about it extensively of like being 28 during COVID has been almost like a best case circumstance of not being in developmental years, but really like heart and sympathies out for people in those positions, people interacting with kids because they're really, I guess, unknown and a crucial period of people's upbringing. The idea around work and play is one that I'd really love to just zoom in on for one more moment and kind of drive home because that's been one of the biggest journeys I've been on the last six months, um, being learning that sometimes there's more creativity, productivity, happiness, fulfillment, all those things that we're trying to move towards space actually is the thing that has allowed me to move towards them which to me is very anti-capitalism right i think to your point from a young age we're told that like we always have to be producing earning money like doing all of the like capitalistic things that were taught early on um and sometimes having that actual space has at least in my experience been the thing that's allowed me to move towards those so maybe it's from your personal experience or maybe it's from research that you've read but why do you think space actually encourages or allows us to move more towards productivity happiness all of like the good things in life i can speak from even my personal experience as a person who is definitely anxious i i think that there is an amount of energy that we, we have to find this space to express or else it becomes psychically frustrating so for me the things that i have to do every day to feel good and balanced are, I, I definitely have to exercise every day. It's really important to have that outlet, like a physical outlet, just like it is, you know, to, to get words on a page. That's something that's going to allow me to have a level of equilibrium. And so I think it's just about, and with the artist way, I, I don't know if she actually uses these terms, but it's kind of about clearing the clutter, right? About taking a minute and just getting all of those things that might be interfering with clarity 
or interfering with you being present, getting those things out of the way, like sweeping them aside. Yeah, I have a quick question uh, in that sense, because you're alluding to the idea that get out of the way, right? Or get out of your own way. And you talked about you're an anxious person. Sounds like just from the context you shared, you're dealing with uh, some sort of anxiety as many people are, right? Anxiety is very, very pervasive and it's pretty common nowadays, especially as you said, because COVID, because of social media, which just exaggerates the whole nine. It's kind of going back to the previous questions about your reconciliations or acceptance process that, you know what? People may not understand my path, but I just love so many things. I just have so many diverging interests. There are so many different gravitational pulls just pulling you from all these directions. So how did you make sure that those noises or even your own anxiety didn't get in your own way of pathfinding or this very unique path you've embarked on for the past 20, 30 years? Really kind of getting away from dualities and of just, and this is something that I have written down because I was in a meeting yesterday where someone was talking about non-dual thinking about complexity and embracing messiness and anytime something seems like an either or or something seems like a very simple like like recognizing that there's probably more digging that needs to be done and i think just embracing that i i do think you know this is a benefit for all of the people who all of the people who say you know like go and study one specific thing that's going to lead to this job or that job or, or whatever other job. Like my background in training school left me being comfortable with questions and uncertainty and with living in an uncertain world. And I think um, that is something that the humanities and social sciences can give people. I, I know I sound like I'm kind of like a, a, a spokesperson for, uh, for the humanities and social sciences right now, but I mean, you study post-colonial theory and you're going to get to some of these these questions about uh, non-dual thinking, about about getting past either ors. And I think it's a good place to be. And I will say um, the evolution of my thought on this has come out of schooling experiences and conversations that I've had in the classroom. Absolutely. And I think that provides a really beautiful transition into a bit of a Women's History Month celebration and asking, are there any prominent female thinkers or humanitarians that really influenced your work or even helped you internally navigate the uncertainty of the world that you just spoke to? Yeah, um, for sure. And I would say Bell Hooks, who passed earlier this year in terms of educational philosophy, was hugely influential. I think, you know, her work on being an embodied figure in the classroom, of, of being present, and of, of really recognizing the humanity of each other um, and on, on the purpose of education, like as a whole, like she she's a major influence on me. And then, you know, I think that more recently that Bettina Love is a figure who uh, is an educational theorist who has done some really interesting work that I'm finding compelling right now about like joy and learning. And then Viola Spolin, you know, just to go back to the the mother of improv, I I think her whole kind of outlook and approach, um, an amazing thing about Spolin is, you know, at the height of the Great Depression in the late 19, mid 1930s, I guess, she went through a divorce and a number of other single mothers in Chicago rented this mansion. They rented this house and they all like co-parented and raised their kids together. Like they taught the kids. They, I mean, it was just this collective community of people who made it work um, in this very uncertain time and place, uh, but, but found a way. So I find her just to be really, really fascinating. And then 
Also, uh, somebody I haven't thought about for since I was in grad school, but Maxine Green, um, who is an, another educational theorist who advocated for the idea of education as a process of awakening. Could we ask you to unpack that a little bit further? I mean, as soon as you said education as a process for awakening, I was intrigued from the start, but really, what does that mean to you? How have you seen that in the classroom? Just would love to hear more on that idea as a whole. Yeah, so the course that I currently co-teach with Paris is framed around the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals, which just really briefly were set in 2015, and they span from goal one, which is zero poverty, all the way to like peace, justice, and strong institutions and action for climate change. You know, we take sixth graders through this journey of exploring and unpacking these massive global goals. And in the process, we see them um, wake up to these things that can be very huge and difficult to grapple with, right? Particularly, they're existential. We give them a project where they have to profile an SDG hero, a person who's working to take action on the SDGs in their own lives. So it might be a parent or an aunt who is a medical field, it might be somebody who's a teacher, it might be somebody who's a librarian. We get kids looking at and waking up to what's happening around them. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be something that is happening in, in DC or in, you know, like the halls of power. These are things like people are making changes all around us and they're, they're being intentional and making decisions to have an impact on their world. And oftentimes, you know, we, we live with them. There are our neighbors, there are our cousins and our older siblings and older students. And we can be those people too. You know, it's just being awake to participating in those processes. And so I think it's it's just the neatest thing. And I, I really will say that like with middle school age kids, um, somebody asked me recently like why I enjoy working with middle schoolers. And it is it does have to do so much with that developmental juncture where you're able to start grasping complexity and start thinking about yourself as like a real agent. The cynicism that, you know, comes with getting older isn't there yet, you know? And so you really do see when you look at, you know, examples of kids like Marley Diaz and they're a host of teen and tween change makers. And I think that they're able to do that. Obviously like Greta Thunberg, um, we're able to do that because um, you have this profound sense of justice of right and wrong and know that like your actions can have an impact. And I do want to say that not everybody is comfortable, you know, I know that like not all kids are, are comfortable being in that role. Not everybody wants to get, get up and, you know, give a speech in front of the UN General Assembly. Like that's part of the reason why Paris and I do this project that we do to show that there are a lot of different ways of participating and making change. You know, it, it doesn't have to be delivering a speech, but you know, you can take smaller actions every day in your local community that can really move move the bar on these things. And I'll say like my kiddo has started asking a lot of existential questions about uh, particularly about peace and the prospect of peace um, and you know, what interferes with world peace. Really the, for, for a young younger child, like the advice that I give is, or you know, the, the talking point that we've had is like, we have to look at, at our sort of the little community that we create and like what seeds we're planting at home, what seeds we're planting at school and how, you know, we can kind of create peace like within ourselves and like control the things that we can. And then we can, you know, try to create a world where there's more giving and, and more sharing and just kind of more peaceful approaches to our daily interactions. Um, so that's what we've been, that's what we've been working on. Appreciate your uh, succinct response as such a large question. 
And of course, we'll uh, weave in and out of these micro, macro, meso topics throughout the interview, that's just how the nature of our conversation flows. As I'm hearing your conversation with your eight-year-old child about what are the barriers to world peace, a, it's really funny, right? Just just yeah. picturing that conversation with a tiny miniature human who's maybe yeah. a foot, maybe tall, and just having that such a depth of question. My second thought was after the laughter, it's like, oh, if you were to ask me that questions, it would be a very short conversation. You would be like, hey, what's objecting or what's the barriers to world peace? I would say us, we are. The end of the conversations. But for an eight-year-old child or children with these empty canvas mentality, they ask you questions. They don't have this entitled thinking that, oh, I know the answers. I'm opinionated to every single subject that I'm not familiar with. Rather, they ask more questions. They're very uh, inquisitive, right? Because they don't know. And by asking questions, a conversations or a dialogue ensues. Whereas with me, aside from my cynicism, from my policy backgrounds, I know enough Yet, because I know enough, I don't have the empty canvas mentality. Guest of ours, Yashua, amazing guy, uh, he said this thing to us in passing on the show. He was like, whenever you ask yourself, is the cup half full or half empty? Dump out the question, just restart. Don't even ask the questions of is half empty or half full. Just start from the beginning. And I think the children have that mindset. And adults do not because of prejudice, biases, or experiences, or jadedness, whatever that may be. I just want to highlight that because it speaks to a very important pillar in creating these changes. We got to start from within, start from an individual level by asking more questions because social media makes us feel like we're experts on every single topic. We're not. Right. Absolutely. 100% agree. You know, I, I think that the important thing with you know, working with kids is not getting them to, to shut down, you know, and, and to get them to push through because we do have to find some solutions, you know. Um, he's also really, really concerned about climate change as, I mean, he lives in a house with, with me and his dad who, as much as you try to shelter your kid, the things that you worry about, they worry about. And we live in the world and we need to be aware of what's happening in the world around us, right? So he worries a lot about climate too. And we need to give kids tools. I'm a, a big believer in, in making sure that, you know, obviously a lot of this work needs to be done at, at a meta level, at a corporate level, at a governmental level, but it's not a great feeling to feel like you don't have anything to feel powerless. And so I think equipping kids with, with the tools, with, with um, everyday things that they can do, small, large outreach actions that they can take, things about how to, you know, organize, I mean, how to organize day of action, you know, um, those kinds of things are really, really critical um, to me as a teacher to kind of like help. That's beautiful. I think for me, I'm especially curious from learning from kids. I think as a society, we all are in agreement that we should be educating our kids, giving them the tools to grow up and live successful lives. But I think Benoit articulated a bit with the empty canvas mentality, but I'd love to hear from you as why should we be learning from kids? What do they have to teach us? I think a lot of times, just the society we live in, capitalism, whatever, like looks at the top power structures, whether it's you know businesses, government officials, like people who have been through the ringer of making these big decisions. Obviously, I'm not saying we should elect a kid for president, but I would love to hear your thoughts around what can we learn from children and why do you think we should integrate their perspectives into social change moving forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's just an, an absolute, like the decisions that we make 
obviously have implications for the people that they're going to impact are not the people who are retired. The, the decisions that <laughs> um, yeah. the, the decisions that we make impact uh, you know obviously young children today and being mindful of that and listening to them I think it's not something where I've always thought the statement like well we're doing this this is like college and career readiness right that's like kind of ridiculous statement to me because like you're living now children are living now you know I mean like you're in seventh or eighth or tenth grade you have a lot of power to have your voice heard and to make a change and it's not just about preparing you for something that's happening in the future that's not the point of school it's about preparing you to participate in your world now and to you know again start having these conversations don't be afraid to ask questions about you know like is peace possible is it you know and to engage with that like i think one thing that we can learn from children is to ask those questions that that sometimes do feel obvious, you know, or like that we do feel like we have, oh, like well, the answer to that is clear. To revisit those questions and to reframe them and, and to like really engage with them because they're often pretty valid. Uh, you know, I mean, like more times than not, you know, they're, they're really good questions that kids are asking. And we've, again, just kind of swept them off to the side as um, abstract or um, this is the way the world is. But if we just keep asking why, why is this the way the world is, you know, and, and how can we change it? Is there another path? Those are things that when we take the lens of the tiny humans, you know, uh, we can often get to those questions that are, are really at the core of what it means to be human. Even those are awesome questions. And I have a follow up to that, Julie. This is alluding to your responses in the Discover More questionnaire. You talked about, this is a generational question that will touch about your own upbringing and your kids now and your students. You talked about one very important pillar that you grew up with that's instilled by your parents very intentionally is how to be an active member in the community. And I sense that sentiment in the statement you just shared, right? Like they are living, their existence is rooted now. It's not anticipatory. It's not tentative. It's not upcoming. They are living now with a path moving forward. So what does it mean to you by what does it mean to be an active member in the community with your own upbringing, with the instilled belief by your parents, but also with this continuous instillment that you hope to give it to your own kid, but also the students is how do we be active in this ever-changing world? So as a, a middle schooler and a teenager, I was really involved in like both my school community and my local community. In the early 90s when, um, I was, you know, kind of in upper elementary and middle school. There was a book that came out called uh, like 50 Simple Things That Kids Can Do to Change the Earth. And I just, I took it and ran with it. And I, you know, in, in the process of working on the questionnaire, I was looking at that book and, um, and thinking about how kind of much something like that informed my trajectory, right? I do today kind of write handbooks for kids that, that give them guidance on how to take action on these things. And, and, you know, I use that to start an environmental, you know, club at my, like a recycling club at my middle school. And then in high school, like the experience of volunteering and being engaged in the community, my mom's family in particular are super community-minded people. Like I come from a family of educators and social workers and, and nurses. Um, this idea of giving is huge. And it was just really central to kind of how I, I saw the world. And I think for me, like what I found really fulfilling about volunteering wasn't just, you know, the sense of like, oh, I'm giving back to the community, but also getting to know 
so many different types of people, like from different, even at the level of other high schoolers, you know, like working with and, and cross-pollinating and meeting and volunteering with kids from other schools and, and, you know, kind of like, I see it a lot in like the youth climate movement today, like these incredible connections that have been forged by kids in, you know, Sweden and Minneapolis and, and Johannesburg and Sydney, like it's, it's incredible to have a shared goal and to meet people who, again, despite sort of cultural or social economic barriers might exist between you or, or differences might exist between you, you have a common goal and you're working towards it. And for me, you know, the idea of like the commons um, of like working towards creating community spaces that are welcoming to and reflect everyone was always just something that was really compelling. And my, my dad in particular definitely always encouraged me to, he's a, a big advocate of looking at this concept of, the, I think it's Eleanor Ostrom is a philosopher who looked at this idea of living and working in a, a sort of culture that, that is focused on what is to the benefit of the commons and this idea and notion of there being a common place, a common space where we where we discuss and meet and engage with each other. Like I think it's, it's really important and our world's so super polarized. Again, I'm saying things that people totally know because we live it every day and we see it and we, you know, there are these echo chambers, but creating spaces where people can actually engage in conversation with each other and, and be together and, and work towards a common goal is really vital. Yeah, that's so important and really reminds me of a idea that I came across recently. It's uh, African philosophy called Ubuntu. Ubuntu, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And it says, or the idea is I am because you are. So the whole idea is a relational identity. So often we're looking at our identity in terms of like our own internal structures, how we show up in the world. I suppose, whereas this African philosophy is so much more relational in nature in that we're almost learning our identities through the space that we're surrounded with, the people that we're surrounded with. Um, I know on the questionnaire you mentioned landscape and identity, the balance of those two. This might be a strange transition, but I would love to see how you like define or think about those in that I'm sensing relational identity kind of concepts. but is it that we can learn about ourselves through the landscapes we live in that you know we form i'm sensing a lot of environmental kind of undertones of this of how we're shaping the landscape and existing within our worlds feel free to take a moment because obviously a big question a bit of a non sequitur but i love that idea of having a relational identity especially in the context of landscape environment and really social change i went to college in new york and had grown up in, in the upper Midwest and, and kind of a mid-sized city. And I also had this experience of having, my dad grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. So, you know, kind of going between these hyper-urban spaces and in this mid-sized city, this kind of ex-urban space, and then rural experiences. And, and really thinking about like, how is my identity impacted by place? How do I interact with people differently in spaces? And there is this tendency, you know, there's this kind of idea of like the last child in the woods and how detached we are from our setting and our environment. But environment is like super impactful. It is um, like the places where we find ourselves are shaping and they are formative and influential. I can't remember the exact volume or book that I was reading, but I think it was Knut Thompson or like another early 20th century Scandinavian Norwegian writer who had talked about like going back and forth, this, this interpolation between being in the city and being in the country and being in the city and being in the country and, and trying to like kind of navigate those poles or those dualities. And, and it was just something that was incredibly 
compelling to me. And as a person who kind of, you know, throughout my childhood kind of straddled those different spaces, just seeing in one space that you can't be in another, I think that's um, a really interesting question about. I loved when I went to college in New York, I was so happy to just kind of be able to disappear. Um, like, I'm, I'm a person who, uh, you know, like, you show up in a new city and you know no one and it's something that I have missed so much in the pandemic because like we haven't been traveling as much but just being able to go and and be unknown and to go out to dinner or to movie or you know to do whatever you want to walk around on your own there's a beauty in that anonymity I think that's a, a pretty incredible feature of urban life that that I just have always found fascinating I sense the tone of sociality like being social with one another, right? Uh, with your response, I bring that up because there are many, many, many contributing and attributing factors to why humans are a very unique species among all these species on earth. And we don't know exactly why, but one of the more definite answers according to research is sociality. It's this social component that enables us to acquire language by giving up you know, other maybe more primitive behaviors. I bring that up because I think one of the things that you alluded to makes these in-person interactions so powerful because you get to experience the newness, whether it's in a new city or when you get to the newness of this new individual that's sitting across that. And we believe, that's why we created the podcast, that one of the most effective avenue to permeate the newness to get into the unknown is storytelling. And of course, you are a very, very gifted storyteller and an accomplished author with six plus books and writer and blogger and teachers, all these things. But one true thread that connects all that identity is your ability to storytell. So I'd love to go into that and ask you about the power of storytelling in light of this Women's Month, in light of all these Mount Rushmore's of models and influencers that you alluded to, all those people, their commonality is also storytelling. So. Uh, it's a very big topic, but I will let you just take whatever directions you want to go with it. My gosh, it's such it's exciting to talk about it because, I mean, storytelling is, like you said, it's about a relationship, right? And I think that what you need in a storytelling configuration is, is you need a teller and an audience, and, and you need a story. You need the tale. The form, I think that the most fascinating thing about storytelling to me is how much it depends on on interpersonal dynamics. It is a relationship that's being forged between storyteller and listener. And that's going to change, you know, like I think it's one of the things about like telling stories in person that's so incredible. And the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we surround ourselves with are, are the stories that inform our identities. They're the stories that help us they help us navigate through the world and make sense of the of the world around us. They're, they're meaning-making devices. And so, I mean, I, I just think that there's nothing more powerful than a story told face-to-face -face and like this engagement between teller and tale and audience. You know, just the, the human capacity, just as a, by way of example, last summer, I was doing some library coursework. I'd like to get certified to be a school librarian. And I had taken a storytelling class and my family, my extended family, we were all in Door County, Wisconsin. And we had a storytelling circle, which was hilarious because um, three of the people participating were children. My parents, my sister, her husband. It was just really, really funny to see how totally transformative. For some people, you wouldn't expect it. They get up and they're going to tell a story and they, they are transformed by the story. I was particularly surprised to see my nephews who 
you know, the varying levels of reserve. My son is a fairly reserved little person, but you get up and, and you embody the story. Like, like there's a sense of wanting to do the story justice and to um, inform and persuade and entertain your audience that is, it's awesome. Um, and it's kind of unexpected. You know, I think it's definitely something that I would love to see more um, happening in school spaces just because it is like so powerful and transformative and is so central to being human. Yeah, I sense a thread of almost the freedom of choicelessness in a way, in the same way that you explained that when the students are improving and they're telling the next piece of the story, they need to pay attention and be present in the moment. But in this case, there's the freedom of choicelessness of wanting to do the story justice. You know, no one's going to get up into the story and speak monologue for the entire time and, you know, forget what they're going to say, but really it's like almost bringing the life out of the story because they want to, you know, entertain the audience, tell the story that does it justice, which I think is just such a powerful idea. I've never thought of that, of not just, you know, storytelling is powerful is one idea, but storytelling is transformational. is just a totally new one. So I appreciate that insight for sure. It's pretty fun to witness. I, I wish we had it recorded, the, uh, the Door County gym 2021 campfire scene uh, was was pretty spectacular and my nephews and, and kiddo were definitely the ones who really had uh, had more to say and a very like intuitive understanding of how to tell a story too i think that's the other amazing thing like they weren't coached that's another thing that kids kind of amazingly know how to do you know i mean if you work with children on writing exercises particularly narrative writing or creative writing. There's a very natural sense of this is going to have a beginning, middle, and an end. There's going to be a conflict. Kids know the element of storytelling fairly intuitively. It's pretty cool. And also storytelling is very prehistoric, right? Yes. Even before yeah. the words, the written literature were invented through cave paintings and 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 BC, whatever that may be, storytelling is part of our DNA. And storytelling is also bi-directional. Like in your microgs, I love that example and it's so funny. Like I had to stop my brain from filling the gaps of detail from that story of that what storytelling circle looked like. But to my imaginations before it was cut short for the sake of this presence for the interview, uh, it's so funny seeing once again, like your, your nephew was there, your son was there and all these miniature humans with these grown ass adults like yourself, like right, like your family members, A, without their relationship, they wouldn't have felt safe or feel called to participate in the storytelling circle. But B, without the, this primitive, prehistoric power that's deeply embedded in our DNA of storytelling, that circle wouldn't have the same impact. Once again, it's not A or B, it's A, yes, and. Yes to relationship, but and to the power of storytelling. And I just wanna highlight that because a, that's a really funny example, and B, uh, it re-reminds of us with the power of storytelling because we do this for so long. We often forget because we just do this with you, with many people, uh, but it's very, very important, and I just want to highlight that message for everyone. Yeah, and I think you like totally hit the nail on the head and, and explicitly articulated something that I just kind of glossed over, which is trust is huge and i think that like trust in storytelling and like you said that event couldn't have happened if it weren't a space where we all kind of trusted and knew each other and felt safe to to be ridiculous that is so affirming and makes you feel so loved like to be listened to and to feel comfortable sharing like it's it really does like center you and, and put you in touch with your humanity it's it's a pretty beautiful thing
Hundred percent. And with all this said, it's you know clear you have the passion for storytelling, uh, equally a passion for children, both your own and students. But to me, the intersection of where those meet, where writing and children intersect, obviously is a big piece of your identity. Writing for children. Would love to hear why you started writing for kids. This idea emerged out of a challenge that I was issued by a seventh or eighth grader when when I first started teaching. So. Uh, it would have been 2007 or 2008. I was teaching outside of Houston, and I would engage my students in an active critique of the textbook. So, you know, we would be saying, like, what is not mentioned? What is not stated? What are we missing? Whose history is not represented? And one of my students looked at me and said, if you think this textbook is so flawed, why don't you just write your own? <laughs> so, um, which is a great challenge. You know, I mean, again, I think that's the kind of question that a kid will like speak truth to power, you know, like, and it's brilliant. And does get you thinking like, well, you know what? Thanks for holding me accountable. Thanks for like calling me on it. And um, that idea kind of sat with me. I toyed with like, you know, doing some different writing exercises. I like wrote 10 minute plays. I did some, you know, like creative writing classes, but more towards grown up audiences. And then I, started working for uh, this book vendor company and would go to publisher meetings and would listen to upcoming lists and would kind of think about a lot of the books as like, was looking at the gaps, like what's not here or how could we make something more interesting? So the first book series that I did was called Nature's Makers and it was about the means of production. And, and like, I mean, it was a way of teaching kids about resources. So about human capital, you know, all of the different types of resources that have to go into creating things that we use every day and taking a human-centered approach on that rather than looking like this is a factory where you know food gets manufactured like this is a person who grows food and sees it through the entire process from seed to stove or from cow to cone whatever you know and it was really just about you know finding the human stories and finding a way to make concepts like relatable for kids i i think there's something i really enjoy about trying to present things in in the most accessible way possible and i'll say that my grad school journeys ultimately ended with um there was this question of like am i opening up conversations or am i closing conversations and the point where i found myself in grad school was like i am getting down into this granular conversation that is so exclusive and that so few people are participating in there's value in that and, and in exploring, you know, a lot of those questions, but it just wasn't where I wanted to be. Like I want, I didn't want to create tools and resources for people to participate in just one very singular, very specialized conversation. I wanted to give people the tools to kind of communicate more broadly with each other and to engage in a, a wider range of, of conversations. So that's ultimately, you know, kind of why I ended up leaving grad school and then, um, you know, going back into teaching and, and writing for kids because it's about expanding those dialogues and, and giving people the tools to make sense of our world and communicate their own thoughts about it. I have a personal curiosity. I take full ownership if it lands nowhere. How do you, as both an author, that sounds like you intentionally gave up death, you chose with, because you realized there's no point of focusing on the singularity or just uh, within the echo chamber, preaching to the choir sort of sentiments. With that being said, how do you grapple with that internal desire to have as much of a viewership or readership 
because you put a lot of effort into curating and thinking about designing the content of these books you're writing. Because like you said, you can't have, you're either picking the very niche expert driven audiences who align with your subject, or you're focusing on people who are instilling new perspectives, which is the lane you choose from what it sounds like to me. So as a writer, how do you grapple with that poll? Yeah, I think that um, I do like to get like very granular with stuff. I do take, you know, a deep dive into like research topics. And I, I think it's just about pulling back and asking questions about audience. Like, and I think it's one of the most important things in the company I work for as editorial director is really mindful of teaching student writers and readers about audience as well. But just being really mindful of like, what's the necessary amount of information? What is going to be cognitive overload? Those are the kinds of questions that I find myself at, the practical questions that I find myself asking a lot and that I've gotten really comfortable with. Like there's a lot of stuff that's boring. I, I would say like as a writer, like, and as a person who's taught history, like. There's a lot of stuff that's just straight up dull. And like, um, you know, I mean, I don't want to write boring books for kids. I don't want to write a book that a kid is going to be like, wow, this is really, like, I can't believe I have to read this. You want to write the, I get to read this book. Like, it's pretty cool that I get to learn about, you know, um, global citizenship or, or, you know, what Marie Curie in, in a way that's like fun and engaging and has like some projects that I can do with my parents or with my friends or, you know, whomever. So really, I, my stance is anti-boring uh, in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of writing, particularly for children audiences. With that aspect, I have a quick follow-up question. I'd love to dive into your storytelling about like how did you yourself grow as a writer? Because I think that would also address that how you became comfortable about not writing boring, but also your ability to package just the necessary information that you alluded to. Writers, we constantly grow through the experience of, uh, particularly if you're writing nonfiction, talking to other writers, of interviewing people, and of really keeping things centered on on human stories, right? And so, so I was doing a story at the beginning of COVID on the closure of this epic place where people, you know, people would take journeys called the Graffiti Highway. It's in Centralia, Pennsylvania, and there's a really tragic story about um, Centralia was a mining town. And there was essentially a a fire in one of the mines and it continued to burn and the entire community had to be like vacated. There was a highway that went in and out of town that like became graffiti covered and drew like a lot of visitors and people who were doing like ATVs and all sorts of stuff, uh, making mischief and just like seeing sites and adding graffiti. But during the COVID pandemic, it was a big draw for people and the state of Pennsylvania or the municipality ended up covering it over and I did a story about this for Atlas Obscura. And in the process, I was, I, we went up to Centralia to see the covered highway. I was, you know, interviewing a lot of people who had interacted with members of the community, both as documentary filmmakers and as authors and playwrights. And there was a really, really fantastic uh, playwright who teaches at Kutztown University's name is Daryl Johnson. We talked and he was just so great about um, reinforcing that like, these are are real people's stories. You know, this was a real community, real lives were real families, real aspirations, like like, this needs to be handled really sensitively. And it's not just about entertainment value. Mm -hmm. You know, leaving that conversation, I felt really strong sense of obligation and duty to do 
right by the members of the community and not just cast this as like, this isn't just about a graffiti highway. Like this is about, there's a lot of pain um, and trauma that surrounds this. And it's not just like a fun story. And, you know, I think a lot of people who had visited that highway, again, did so without that context or without that idea that like, this is a place that I am here because like something really traumatic happened to this community. People are still processing that. You know, after that conversation, it's something that I just always kind of go back to as a writer, as as kind of like a North Star or a compass, you know, like a point to orient myself. Whose stories do I have the right to tell this story? And if I'm going to tell it, how can I do so in the way that is most responsible and mindful of um, the people whose story it is that's being told? Just to go back to the question of storytelling, there's so much interesting space to talk about who can tell a story and who has the right to tell a story and how we tell stories about ourselves and each other. I think that it's something that needs to be handled with such intentionality and such sensitivity. And I'm fascinated by writers who, you know, tackle things like historical fiction. It's just a hurdle that I personally I've tried doing it, but I can't get past my own self-consciousness about like not really ever being able to fully understand what the experience of another person in another time and place would look like. You know, there are limits to my imagination and I really admire people who can suspend that and create create worlds. Um, those are the questions that are always coming up for me and that can interfere with creative processes, but I think in a way that is ultimately good. Sometimes I think that those stop signs are valuable. Love those questions, and certainly I'm going to be thinking through them anytime I put pen to paper, for sure. In general, I've kind of tried to stick to my own experiences, because generally those are the ones we have the most ownership over. And having that, I guess, framework that you just provided, I think, is super valuable, both for writers and even storytellers in general. You know, sometimes it's not our experience or story to tell. If there's other people in the room that have a better experience or a more accurate representation of that, And I think from this, it's still related, but on the storytelling and writing side, you know, we just talked about a long article you wrote in a magazine for this graffiti highway. Um, But for me, this is a question I've asked on a previous episode, but it ties in the education side of writing. So say you're allowed to design a front page of every textbook in America, and it can read one thing, one clear message that every student gets to look at, read, lean into every morning before they go learn, play, but what would that front page of your textbook say? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I mean, I really do think it would come down to like, your questions matter, and questions are the cornerstone. I think that any book needs to be prefaced with like, this is a starting point. It would be almost sort of like a warning label. What I would put on is like this, like the, not all, like this book does not have all of the answers. It's like a starting point and it would, will help you generate more questions, but like, don't think that you've read the book and you're done. Think of it as a gateway drug to more books. That's the first time I've heard gateway drugs in such a positive connotation. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but yes, good drug for your brain's knowledge. Exactly. So this is a follow-up to that with your response and the previous questions. And we're speaking to our listeners who maybe share your passion, who are really inspired and motivated after listening to this episode. They're like, you know what? I want to start creating my worlds my versions of the worlds. But one thing I want to really highlight is I've never heard anyone else say, say this until you did, is you said that sometimes your hesitations or fear or apprehensions can be a good thing because stop signs saves lives. 
I mean, you never want to overlook the stop signs, but sometimes you want to keep going, but sometimes you want to take a moment and really pause and push that pedal to the brake. So for people, because it sounds like you're still grappling with this, like we talk about imposter syndromes or comparison syndromes or whatever syndromes, it's a lifelong thing. It's not like you hit a certain age and bam, I'm a master, right? right? So with all that context in mind, what would you advise to younger aspiring writers who, or who want to embark on this journey? It's a very meta question. It's such a good question. My advice to people who are, are starting as writers is to experiment with a wide variety of forms. First, like I think that you know, finding where you write with the most comfort and what type of writing brings you the most joy. Maybe it's short stories. Maybe it's ten minute plays. Maybe it's you know, doing things in more of a journalistic format or memoir. But just finding where can you find flow? Right? We've talked about flow a few times, but um, where does it feel right? And I. I think that you have to be really intuitive as a writer like you have to trust your intuition and you know there's sometimes that things are not gonna feel right and if that's the case then you just you set that manuscript aside and you just say it's an idea that I find interesting and maybe I'll come back to it but this isn't working right now like it feels too forced or too stilted I write mostly nonfiction for kids and so I take a lot of comfort in the research process. It makes me feel like I have a solid foundation on which to stand when I start writing. But there's definitely a point where you just have to push yourself to start, right? There's only so much research that you can do. I will say that this method, this teacher named Judith Hockman, who has a whole like writing program that planning and revision are incredibly important. Going into your work of writing, going into your work, kind of knowing your voice and knowing what you want to say is critical like do that pre-work invest the time before we want to be done with things right we want to like like there's a tendency like okay i finished like it's done and you have to go back and revisit it and i think solicit feedback from peers and friends and um, you know other people from expert readers because everybody's going to see something different in the story and my full-time job as editorial director at think circa we spend a lot of time going back and forth and looking at the text that we select and having different people vet and review them through different lenses because again my interpretation is going to be rooted in my experience and somebody else might have a totally different interpretation of the text and we want to have those conversations and I think as a writer, I want people to give me that feedback. Again, like you grow through the conversation, right? And your writing gets better. Yeah, I love that example. And it really helps me because for the longest time, I was almost balancing trying to find the optimal point versus perfection point. But I think the idea that you just brought in is there's actually a point below the optimal point being just the completed point. And it's our responsibility as writers and learners to try and move upwards from just what's completed into what's actually optimal. You know, if we're seeking perfection, it becomes exhausting, but the true quest should be towards what is optimal. And generally, you know, isn't it the Hemingway quote that every first draft is not worth reading or terrible or something? Right. Um, but I think it's just like unwritten idea that it, there always has to be that refinement process, that improvement process. From there, and I, a related idea that I think might tie in with something you mentioned on the questionnaire is social sculpture, treating everything as art, which I had never heard of before, but I've sensed sincere overlap between this writing refinement process and then this living as a sense of art. So I would love if we could hear you know, this concept in general and how you apply it and even teach it in your life. 
Yeah, to me, this is like the most mind-blowing idea. Um, and it's, uh, there was an artist named Joseph Weiss who worked a lot in the like 50s and 60s and took this approach, putting it out there, like, what if we all thought of ourselves? What if we all regarded ourselves as creators and regarded everybody else as creative people who are, you know, working collectively to sculpt the, and shape the world in which we live? Like, we are literally sculpting society. There are some really incredible examples of how, of like what this work looks like on a practical level. Like people have done it. The reason I know about it is because of this organization in Houston called Project Row Houses. And I'll send you a link to a video by one of their founders, Rick Lowe, who explains the concept really elegantly. It's like a five minute um, sort of Pecha Kucha style presentation where he just goes and gives two examples of what it looks like in practice. It could be starting a business, it could be, um, you know, approaching your education, it could be really anything. It could be parenting, it could be partnering, you know, like, what if we approach this and the other participants in that arrangement as artists and as people that we're co-constructing this space with and thinking about things in a more generative way, right? In a way that is, uh, I guess it's kind of like, you know, the Freudian death versus love impulse, you know, like, like you're working with the love impulse, like it is things are born out of that desire to create rather than destroy. It's this kind of amazing configuration. So Project Row Houses took a portion of, they're called like shotgun houses in Houston. And there were, you know, all of these houses that had not been in use and they were repaired and created into kind of like an art space and providing economic support to the community, after school tutoring, just places for people to engage with each other and a super positive way and again to like nurture their own creative impulses um, and other like sort of social sculpture projects have taken a, a more environmental bent there's a project that was done where weapons were collected and melted down and then an artist crafted them into shovels and those shovels were used to plant trees and, and reforest and you know again taking something destructive and turning it into something creative and generative is kind of the underpinning idea I think it's it's just a really cool idea. Um, how would there are the spaces in which we move be different if you know, like if you went into a school and every morning the kids were reminded that they were artists and creatives and that all of the people around them are too. You know, like how would we would we treat each other differently if that ethos underpinned everything? And I'd like to be a part of that experiment. I think that's a you know it would be pretty fun. Yeah, I echo what Aiden said. I've never heard of that concept and it is it is very mind-blowing. And I just want to share a quote that I heard with uh, Andrew Hobelman. He's a PhD neuroscientist at Stanford. And he talks about the most mind-blowing things about human minds is that they can't be mind-blown. Like truly, it doesn't matter how... Like, I literally had to take a day or two to process what that quote means. But if you think about how neuroplastic and malleable our brains are and how expansive they're capable to be, you can bring the most absurd and insane idea. Like for example, if you tell them how much computation power we have in our iPhone 11, 12, 13 nowadays, you bring that concept back to 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people would have burned you on the stakes. They're like, this is, this is witchcraft, this is... But you give that individual who wanna burn you on a witch stake, you give them two days, they will process and internalize and accept that concept. This is the endless fascinations with me, with human brains and minds, is the capacity is truly endless. I think that's so fascinating. At the same time, we will do our brains a huge disservice if we don't at least ask us these questions. 
if we don't at least entertain the possibilities. That is the biggest disservice, I think, with our education system. You're siloing, you're silencing, and you're limiting, confining these endless capacity that these individual, these young minds have. But we're not really giving them an opportunity to expand to their predestined capacity. And I, that really saddens me deeply because I'm also a former educator who taught middle school. Yeah, which is very interesting. But how do you view the concept of organized chaos? So I think structure in education is incredibly important because it lays a foundation where kids feel like steady and safe and it's that sort of foundational piece. There was an article, I haven't read it yet, uh, that came out I think in this week's Atlantic about Montessori education and this kind of question as something that people often ask what's Montessori, like how can the kids just do whatever they want, like is it structuralism? <laughs> Montessori is actually so structured. The reason kids can do whatever they want is because there's an underlying sort of basis for it, right? There's an, and there's an underlying sense of responsibility in Montessori classrooms where, you know, when you are in early childhood or, you know, pre-K, you are doing chores, like you are preparing snack, you are, um, you know, like you're sweeping, you're doing all of these things to participate in that classroom community. And then there's an intrinsic motivation rather than a sort of extrinsic motivation that's attached to it. So I do think that in terms of like the classroom not devolving into total chaos, like I'm going to sit, just read in this corner, the, like my favorite comic book all day, like that doesn't happen because there is a sense of like expectation and responsibility. I don't know if that answers the question, but I do think like, I think Montessori is a good example of how it's possible to balance choice, which I think, again, is like one of the most important things to give kids in a classroom setting. If a teacher can set up a classroom where a kid feels like they're doing something that they're actually interested in, that's a marker of success because the kid's going to be having fun and they're going to be engaged and they're going to be joyful. Like, So if you can create learning experiences where kids can be pursuing a topic or a question, building skills that they need, but pursuing a topic or question that is of interest to them. Like that's to me like the biggest win that a teacher can have. Yeah, I love that. As someone who went to Montessori school in the very little days, um, I remember that was a big piece of it was that freedom to experiment, I guess, within the confines. I'm seeing a funny through line almost with the social sculpture idea that you mentioned earlier in that in this environment, kids are almost taught that being creative is important. Uh, this ties in with a lot of conversations we've had. Actually, Paris also introduced us to this other guest that we talked to, Kitty Noor, and her whole, whole premise was the healing element of creativity, right? As humans, it's healing and it helps us grow by expressing our creativity, which I just see an interesting through line between like education, the social structure, and like that human, almost like innate desire to create, to express. We have so many fascinating points that we keep coming back to, right? With like storytelling and, you know, this kind of innate want of putting ideas out into the world. And whether, you know, it's, we, we've talked about like Neolithic and Paleolithic humans a little bit because of storytelling and cave painting. But, you know, I mean, there's this expressive desire that's really profound. And I don't think, um, like, I think it should be nurtured rather than repressed. And in a lot of educational contexts right now, it's repressed. You can't take away something that's in our human DNA, right? And I think that irrepressible spirit to create is you know, going to come out in a, a positive way or a destructive way. Like people are gonna find a way to, to express their, their creativity and their feelings regardless, but we can help them channel it into something, you know, we can help young people channel it into something that is going to feel good and have a positive social impact if we're intentional about, about what we do. 
as you said, the synchronicities in our conversation is very, very apparent. Every storytellers are also creators because you're creating stories to share. And as we said, storytelling is prehistoric. On the same token, creating are this, as Ada alluded to, this innate creativity process or this innate desire to create is also prehistoric because singular event that put humans as the apex predators is our ability to create tools. So if you really think about it, creating from nothingness to something is also in our human DNAs. And that makes me think about on a systematic and macro levels, how many billions of humans are deprived of their urge, this innate uh, genetic wiring, right? That both saddens me, but also shows me this optimistic and very this endless possibilities of what would, as you said, how would the world look different if billions of humans are now starting to collectively tap into this prehistoric uh, design to truly create something out of nothing, whether it's pen to paper, uh, which is the avenue for both of you, or from mouth to mic, which is my preferred avenue, or drawing or whatever expressions. But as you said, I think the possibilities can be endless, but we got to start asking questions. And that's, that's very, very, very uh, awesome to hear. I spent a lot of time looking at Truth and Reconciliation Commissions and how people, how societies recover from collective trauma. And, you know, storytelling in so many places has been such a central part of that healing process, allowing people to testify to their experiences and to feel heard. I think is just something that, and, you know, when you look at things like restorative justice, practices too, like they're really predicated on that idea of giving people the space to to say what they have experienced, to say how that experience has been shaping or destructive or, you know, affirming or positive or, and what they left with. You know, storytelling as a, a, a way to reconcile to, as just a way to say like, this is what happened to me. I'm thinking particularly about like South Africa and Guatemala, creating spaces for people to, to share those experiences. Um, is really really profound yeah absolutely i'm sensing almost like a nurturing element to a lot of the ideas we've talked about thus far especially in this context of social change right the acceptance the reparations the really coming to terms with what has happened there's definitely like a very nurturing motherly energy which i think to me makes me curious around this whole women's history month what can we learn from the feminine, from women in history, especially in the container of social change. I think we've maybe talked about some of those ideas in passing, but really would love to turn the mic back to you as we're you know, reaching the kind of end of the conversation. Still would love to hear some of these bigger conversations, but what do you think the nurturing elements the feminine can teach patriarchal society about moving forward in a succinct and conscious way? Yeah, I think really it's about moving more towards fluidity and beyond binaries, you know, and I think that things that are traditionally regarded as, as masculine and feminine, you know, kind of traits or qualities, reframing those as human qualities and qualities that we all possess and embracing that. I think there's a lot just in terms of how gendered so many spaces in particular educational spaces and I mean like if you go to a store there you know will still be kind of aisles that suggest that these are toys for boys or these are toys for girls and I, I really think that it's time to move past that 
I love world languages. Like I'm like a, a not very good polyglot. Like I, I know like, a, <laughs> yeah, I, I admire polyglot. People who speak multiple languages are very, very impressive to me. I enjoy like kind of dabbling in, in different world languages, but I've always thought that like, there's something so brilliant, like in German, it's das Kind. You know, it's, it's, it's a child, it's gender neutral. Like it's not die or der. It's das. There's no assignation of gender to a young human. It's just the language doesn't allow for it. You know, that's something that I always just kind of loved about like that particular German article. I think there's a lot to be learned from about creating that space, particularly for young people to um, to kind of think about who they want to be and decide who they want to be and detach from some traditional notions of what gender is or you know I, I think there's so much room to do and this is something that is obviously really politically charged right now because uh, there are a lot of states that are legislating against talking about things like gender and sexuality in the classroom but at the end of the day we want to affirm students and give them the tools to be who they are and, and we have to break down these these constructs and allow people to be who they are in order to do that or at least the bare minimum is for us or the policymakers not create a ceiling for them to thrive. Yes. Right? Yeah. As the bare yeah. minimum. If anything, if we're not gonna provide a nurturing environment for our future generations, the least we could do is at least don't create additional barriers to cap their potential. Exactly. There's so much work to be done in terms of gender equity still. Looking at particularly like the persistence of the gender pay gap in the United States and globally, like there's a lot of work to be done. Thinking about the SDGs in 2030 as a target date for achieving parity, not just in, in that, but a range of gender areas in terms of political representation, for example, gender is still a barrier. It's, it's a construct that informs the way that really does have an impact on the way people live and move in the world. And we have to create structures that ensure fairness and equity. First and foremost, definitely to your point earlier, I want to recognize you for creating that space and doing the work in the classroom that's allowing kids to, you know, come to terms with their identity without the identification of male, female, whatever it may be. To the political side of things, I mean, for me, anytime people are burning books, that's generally not a good sign. Right. Um, against a lot of the fundamental things that we've talked about throughout this. With that idea in mind, you know, you mentioned 2030 as the target date for the sustainable development goals. What, I guess, kind of structures are, I feel like the theme of this conversation in questions, but what would you say are some of the big questions that we should be asking as we're continuing to move towards that 2030 date and making change at the societal level towards all of these environmental identity, gender ideas that we've talked through thus far? I guess, you know, the question is like, what now? Like, where do we go from here? How can we... How do we move past it and, and what role can some of these things that we've been talking about play in helping people recover and reemerge and ultimately kind of start tracking back towards working on the global goals? There are many people, obviously, tons of people who never stopped working towards the global I mean, it's not like they went on a two-year hiatus. They're just been setbacks due to like obviously major global events. But I think the question is like how can things that we've talked about today be a tool in reaching those goals? How can storytelling help us achieve the SDGs? How can um, storytelling help emphasize the importance or illustrate the importance 
of things like zero poverty or, or climate or, you know, working together in partnership for the goals. Those questions, I think, are, are really valid. And then I think also the questions that I would want people to go into, can social sculpture be a tool? You know, is that a helpful construct for implementing the goals? What other concepts can we take and apply to these goals to really make them resonate with people and, and make people want to be a part of achieving them? Because ultimately it's not about the, you know, it's not about the people at UN headquarters in New York or the Hague. Like, it's about the world. We want people to know about them so that they feel empowered to participate in, in making positive change. I just want to add one more full word on top of that uh, because I feel very called to where I think we talked about culture earlier in the conversations, uh, but we need to start detaching certain stigma or ideas around what culture looks like. Because when you view culture as just the culture, that's too strong, it's too powerful. You're going to feel powerless. You're going to feel like, how can individuals like me, doesn't matter how much training I have or knowledge or interest, individuals can never win against the culture. However, if you flip that script, right, and reframe that as, okay, the current paradigm or culture is comprised of many individual reinforced beliefs, that means there is opportunity for change because culture isn't just this, this totality, this monstrosity, it's comprised of many decision makers. And I think that's what you're alluding to. And the one thing I want to say is we also need to view these uh, sustainable development goals or these UN goals or whatever that may be as end all be all, or in terms of, oh, only the government or only certain governance can change that. But at the same time, government or governance is comprised of individual decision makers and all these politicians or people like us who just embarked on a different journey as we have. So I do think that by asking these questions, we can truly incrementally making some changes or at least start thinking about the possibility, which I think is another threat from this conversation. In addition to that, I just want to highlight the gender gap that Julie talked about is one notable example is like pink tax or like the tampon tax, right? So this is a fact, by the way, the fact is in 2022, every woman pays 7% more than every man, any female product, anything that that's catered and marketed towards women consumers is 7% more expensive than average male products that's targeted at male consumers. And that's literally just the fact that based on their identity as females or women, 7% adds up. And another statistics is on average, a woman spends $1.5 million more than men over the span of their lifetime. And that's every single woman in the US who is subjugated under the 7% paying tax. And there's a lot more examples to substantiate and talk about what we're talking about here is just because a lot of males don't see this quote unquote gender inequality or disparities in their lives, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It is truly endemic and it is still happening in 2022. And on that token, I've heard many men talk about, oh, what do you mean gender inequality? A woman can do everything that men can do. I was like, how fucking low is your standard? That's your standard for equality? That woman can do everything men do? Like this is 2022, it's ridiculous. So I just want to really put that on message board and because like, like we talked about, there's many different decision makers and people who create these paradigm. And a lot of that is white men, even race aside, it's men. We have to do our due diligence to start storytelling or creating these avenues because like the systematic change is not going to happen and never ever happens overnight. 
but it is these every opportunities that we lean into. It's every curiosity we answer. It's every questions we ask ourselves and others that I believe over time creates this ripple effect. Uh, but I just really wanted to highlight that for people because gender inequality is still very much real. It's not a fable. It's not a folklore. It is very much reality we still deal with in today's day and age. Absolutely, and I would say, you know, I think it's the average gap globally is seventy cents on the dollar a, a woman makes to every male dollar. The Department of Labor in the U.S. has a fascinating calculator where you can look by profession. So you know, you can see what an average male pharmacist versus female pharmacist or a male teacher versus female teacher makes and really, you know, calculate out that gap for yourself, for the people in your lives and think about, you know, again, the implications with that pay gap set up against the, the sort of tax gap that you referenced, Benoit. When you compare those two things or when you pair those two things together, there's a quantitative and a qualitative impact that that has on the lives of like every female identified person in America, you know, so that's just something that if you have the time to do it, take a look at it because it does hit home. You know, when you actually look at the numbers and run the numbers, you're like, oh wow, that's an actual penalty that's that's attached to gender. And we have to get, that. I mean, to me, that is something, a justice issue and a human rights issue. Women's History Month does give us um, a moment to take pause and, and shine light on that and really kind of unpack it and say, you know, there's really zero reason why this shouldn't be the case. And, and that's, just the product of historical circumstances that we need to change, you know, and we need to actively address them and be mindful of, um, of how we're going to strategically address this as a, as a world community. Yeah, we'll be sure to link all of those resources that you guys just mentioned in the show notes, that way people could access them. I think for me, the question of, so what now jumps out? You mentioned that being the big question to ask, but I think especially in the context of this pay gap of bringing gender equality through, I think ending on that question of what now? I'm a big believer that awareness is the first step to change. And now that we kind of cross that awareness bridge, showing that this is still very much an issue, how can we equip our listeners and ourselves to better move forward to creating this equal and just world that falls in line with the sustainable development goals in five to 10 years? You know, there's some incredible actors who have, and by that I mean like social actors, not, you know. The U.S. women's soccer team recently finally won their, um, like, I think it's about looking at the victories. I did some work on social movement theory when I was at the LSE and really studying and thinking about, like, what makes a movement successful, what allowed them to achieve that victory, and what strategies were used well. And how can we extrapolate that and take that and apply it, you know, in other settings and contexts? How can we, um, there's some really fascinating examples if you break down and look at governments with elected women leaders and, you know, looking at representational differences in democracies and businesses. The places with, I think, the most female representation in government are Rwanda and then like Iceland and the Scandinavian countries. But just looking at how those things are achieved and, and what's replicable about them and what underpinning you know social structures are supporting those changes and developments those are the kinds of questions that we need to be asking we you know and again taking the analytical tools that we have and saying like this is what the u.s women's soccer team did right in this case and this is what we can draw and apply elsewhere we need the case studies 
this has been one of my favorite interviews we've done because almost every question has been answered with another question. It's such a beautiful way to learn and encourage other people to learn. You know, like there's always more questions and I think even the way you've showed up in this interview has been an elegant representation of the way that you teach, the way that you live. So again, we're just really, really thankful to have the opportunity to speak with you today. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much to you both. Yeah, Julie. So yeah, as Aiden said, I also want to echo for the beautiful opportunity you created and the message and the messaging board and the whole nine they're sharing with our listeners, especially in light of the Women's History Month. So we think it's a beautiful way for us to conclude today's ever and so encompassing conversations by asking you the DMP question, discover more questions. So the question is twofold. Fold one is after this very expansive conversation and dialogue, what is one thing in your life, personal, interpersonal, professional life that you want to discover more about after you leave the interview space? And the second layer is what is one area in our listeners' lives that you want to encourage and challenge for them to discover more about? And that could be related to the theme of March or unrelated. Yeah, so I think in terms of, um, there are things that we've touched on in this conversation that have been of interest to me for for a long time, namely neuroplasticity. And this conversation just kind of reactivated that, right? There's like a nice um, reawakening of some of these things that have been laying dormant in my mind. So I'm really eager to explore more about like the neuroplastic brain. So thank you for that. And then just in terms of things that I would want listeners to continue to think about, what constitutes a good education? You know, what constitutes a good education in their view? You know, what would your ideal educational experience look like? And is that what we're creating for children? I think those are the the kinds of questions that I hope people will really ask and meaningfully engage with and take with them out of this. So thank you guys so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and super energizing and, and fun. So thanks. Yeah, certainly our pleasure. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much. And beautiful way to leave the audience with those big questions. So to end the episode, uh, this is where we roll out the red carpet for you. Uh, whether it's social media, whether it's the books, that's I know you have a couple of books and projects in the horizons. Uh, where can our listeners connect with you and check out your fine work and maybe for them to continue their discussions and uh, diving deeper into topics that really resonate with them in their respective lives? Well, listeners can reach me. Uh, you can check out my website at juliecanutsonauthor.com. Um, I am also on Twitter and a reluctant participant on Twitter, an ambivalent user of Twitter, but people in my life uh, who work in publishing tell me it's important, so it's, I have to keep the account open. You can also find me on Instagram, just reach out in any of those avenues, and I, I'd love to connect and learn more about you know your response to some of these questions and your feedback on some of the ideas that we've uh, we've kind of bandied about on the show today, so thank you. Awesome. Uh, just one more message for the listeners to part ways. I just want to talk about how we, the Discover More show, Aiden and myself, we truly believe it is the job of those people who are privileged to elevate the voices of those who need to be elevated. And with this conversation that's really, really important and close to all of our hearts, I hope individuals and every single person listening in especially if you're a male, please do not disregard this as a strictly subject for a woman because every man has a mother, has a sister, has a spouse. And there's many, many amazing, amazing women figures that's rooted in everyone's lives. 
And I hope everyone can answer that calling, answer that curiosity, and just ask one more question. And you don't know how the world will look different if every single one of us do that, especially starting now, because it is never too late. And with that being said, we truly appreciate everyone for listening towards the end of the show. And as always, we will include all the relevant resources and books and authors and inspirations in the show notes below. And with that, I hope you continue to discover more with us next week. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.